Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Well, this morning I'd ask that you turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, but also you can see in your bulletins there, go ahead and find Ephesians 4 and Romans 15. You know it's my habit, I normally like to to find one text and kind of camp out there and exposit that text over the course of the morning, but uh, this morning in an attempt to kind of condense some of these ideas about church unity, particularly the, the consequences of conflict when it comes to what happens when we are not unified, I, I want to, to essentially give three mini-expositions. And some of you are worried, even as I say that, he's going to preach three sermons right back to back to back. I'm good. We're, we're still going to try to beat the Methodist to Cracker Barrel today, okay? We'll, we'll still uh, get through this pretty quickly. But, um, but I do want to uh, take a look at these three different passages that I think each one reveals to us a consequence of conflict within the church. As you're turning there, I want to share briefly with you one of the uh, worst phone calls I ever received. Uh, I remember vividly I was in my second year of teaching, teaching down in Somerset at Northern Middle. Um, I was teaching an eighth grade history class and I felt my phone start to buzz in my pocket. Normally, if if I'm in the middle of something, I, I kind of ignore it whenever that happens, right? But I looked down quickly and saw that it was... One of my friends, my very best friend, calling me, and I thought, well, that's odd. He knows that I'm at work. Uh, he knows that I probably can't talk right now, so I just slid my phone back in my pocket, and a few seconds later, it started buzzing again, and immediately I thought, uh-oh, because that's kind of the, the code, right? If you call twice in a row in rapid succession, we know that that's an important call we need to answer. So as soon as I could, I stepped out of the room, and I called my friend, and He began to tell me with a wavering voice how earlier that day his younger brother had been in a horrible car accident. His brother and his friend who were in high school at the time had decided to skip school. They'd taken some drugs of some sort and his brother had crashed his car into a tree. And his brother's friend was killed instantly. His brother, my friend's brother, was going to be having emergency surgery within just a short little while to remove portions of his colon, his intestines, and he didn't know at that time what he had done, that he had killed his friend. And so my friend wanted me to go with him to the hospital to be with the family and ultimately to break the news to his brother about what he had done, what had happened. There's some catastrophes that no matter what we've experienced, we're just not prepared for We don't have the right words because there are no right words in such a situation as that. Sometimes a person makes such a mess that irreparable harm is done and others are left to go behind them and sort out the consequences of their behavior. A few days after that, I accompanied my friend again and I was so proud of him as he went to the funeral home to represent his family at the funeral of this other young man and I stood by him as he spoke with a mother and father whose son lay in the casket just a few feet in front of them. Multiple lives ruined, multiple families 
devastated because the choices of two young men that they thought in the moment were no big deal. How many times have we witnessed similar stories play out? I'm sure that each of you probably have a a story that happened to someone that you're close to that's very similar in nature. You see, nobody ever gets out of the bed in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to get loaded and kill my friend today. You know, nobody gets up and says, I think today's the day I'm going to get arrested and break my mother's heart. Nobody ever says today, even though I'm not in any way prepared or even married, I'm, I'm going to get pregnant today or I'm going to go and get somebody pregnant. Nobody ever gets up and says, you know, today I'm going to launch a bomb that divides the church. Nobody ever sets out expecting to do something with devastating consequences. They may be vaguely aware that negative consequences are a possibility of their behavior, that that something bad might happen, but usually we kind of justify that and rationalize that away and say, "Well, well, those consequences will be for somebody else. I won't experience those consequences. I can do what I want and get away with it. Nothing will ever affect me. Just yesterday, I read in the newspaper this morning that just yesterday there's a kayaker that went over Cumberland Falls down to the south and had to be rescued by emergency personnel. And I'm sure that up until the moment he went over the falls, he was probably confident, I've got this. There's no way there could be anything go wrong with this. We never expect bad consequences to occur. But as a church, though, we have to be aware that when it comes to divisive behavior, there are extremely negative consequences that's affecting us and our mission. And we cannot be flippant about this because our choices affect eternity. Eternity is at stake. Eternity for me, eternity for you, and eternity for everyone outside these doors, up and down the streets of Athens and on down. All around us in our community, there are people that are living and dying and entering heaven or hell. And we as a church have a mission to be gospel representatives to those people, to make sure that the good news of Jesus Christ reaches them. And if we are dealing with the consequences of conflict, we can't be effectively pursuing the mission that God has given us as a church. So the past couple of weeks we've been talking about What causes conflict? The the seeds of conflict. Today, we're going to talk about what conflict causes. The results of conflict. The consequences of conflict. That come as a result of our divisive behavior. So as I said, we'll be considering three different uh, texts this morning. Galatians 5. Ephesians uh, 4. And Romans 15. And so I would ask this morning if you are able that you please stand together in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We'll read through each of these texts here to begin with, and then we'll handle each one in turn. But Ephesians 5, verses 13 through 15, there we read, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
And then over in Ephesians, just a few pages over, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then back in Romans 15, verses 5-7, through 7, we read this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we are thankful this morning, thankful for the opportunity to come together and with one accord, with one voice, lift up your praises. Because, oh God, you are worthy of praise. You have called us out of darkness, out of sin, out of death, and have brought us together here in this room as one people, as one body, as one family. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that unity that the blood of Jesus provides. Lord, I I pray even now that as we have read these texts and as we begin to consider the consequences of conflict, that you would be working through your Holy Spirit in the hearts of of the hearers, whether they are here in this room, whether they are watching our live stream this morning, wherever they are, Lord, I pray that you would work on the hearts of the hearers so that we might examine ourselves and see if there is any bitter root springing up within us, if there is any long held grudge, if there is any dislike for the person in the pew across from us, that we would root that out. And that we would pursue reconciliation and unity that's made possible by the blood of Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet submitted their life to Christ, if if they have not had the blood applied to their life, Lord, I pray that today for them would be a day of salvation so that they might begin to experience the unity that we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I cannot make these things happen, but you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, not only can make them happen, but you ensure that they will. And so with confidence, I entrust the rest of this service to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we talk about consequences, I know that we all hate consequences. Nobody likes the consequences of bad decisions. We wish that we could avoid them entirely, although we often keep making the bad decisions that lead to bad consequences. Here in Scripture, we're given very specific warnings about the consequences of conflict, of divisive behavior within the church. And we see that the consequences will be devastating. These consequences are not just some small thing that we can... Say, okay, yeah, I'll I'll take that and go on. These are devastating. 
These can derail and ruin a church and its ministry. Its effectiveness in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to their neighbors and to the nations. We've seen warnings already in James and in Jude against our disordered desires, against down-talking your brothers or sisters, against grumbling and complaining, and even flattering. Today, we will see what happens if we actually pursue those things. If we don't heed those warnings and we decide that we're going to down-talk our brothers and sisters in Christ, that behind closed doors we're going to say nasty, mean things about them, if we decide that we're going to pursue our lustful desires, the desires of our flesh, in getting what we want, regardless of what anyone else may want or need, if we flatter, if we grumble, if we complain, we're going to see what happens when we do those things. The first consequence of divisiveness, Paul writes here in Galatians, is that we will consume ourselves. The church will begin to cannibalize itself. Paul tells us here that we are called to freedom. He says you are called to freedom. But do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In Christ then, we have liberty. Jesus has saved us from sin. He has set us free from being enslaved to Satan. And so we have great freedom as Christians. People think that that being a Christian is restrictive. But the Bible actually tells us that in Christ Jesus, we have more freedom than the world around us because they are enslaved to sin. They can only participate in sinful behaviors and activities. But we, brothers and sisters, we have freedom in Christ. And this is good news, but Paul says you should not use that freedom in such a way as to gratify your own sinful and fleshly desires. So it's not freedom to do just whatever we want to do. We're not to use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now we've seen over the past couple weeks as we've talked about this issue, how the desires of our flesh are often at the heart of disunity. Those two dangerous words, I want, I want, that can sow the seeds of disunity in a family, in a workplace, and especially in a church. Whenever we begin to say, I want this or I want that, and my desires are the ones that must be catered to, that's where disunity comes from. James says, where do wars and quarrels come from among you? They come from your own fleshly desires. And so Paul here warns us again not to use our freedom to pursue those lusts, but instead to serve one another in love. See, serving one another is just the opposite of selfishness. It's self-denial. And Paul says that that we should participate in self-denial to serve one another for the sake of our family. That's unity. Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the law. Everyone in here, you, you should love everyone in this room as you love yourself. Plain and simple. And so, I mean, you can just look around. Do I love Leonard over there as I love myself? Do I love Pam as I love myself? You ought to. That's what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. To love one another as we love ourselves. That's the summary of the law. Yet we resist that. We don't like this because we wrongly think that if we practice self-denial, if we deny ourselves in order to serve one another, that we're never going to get what we want. 
You see, the world tells us you have to go out and get yours. Don't wait for somebody to give it to you. You've got to go out and take it. And who cares who you hurt in the way? Who cares who gets hurt in the process of you satisfying your own sinful desires? And so the world constantly gives us this message. And so we think, well, if we come in here and we deny ourselves, then we'll never get anything we want. We'll become slaves. We'll be walked all over. But here's the beauty in this. You see, God knows what he's doing when he tells us this. And here's the wonderful reality that if I'm willing to set aside my own fleshly desires, my own selfish desires, if I'm willing to set that aside and to serve you, and if you're willing to set aside your selfish desires and to serve me or serve one another, if we're all willing to do that, then guess what? We're all going to be satisfied. We're all going to get what we want. We're all going to be happy. And I'll be happy because I know that in my setting my desires aside, it's made you happy. Instead of if I'm selfishly pursuing my desires and I do manage somehow to get what I want, which often doesn't happen, and you're selfishly pursuing your desires and you don't get what you want, then you're going to be jealous and upset and angry at me. Whenever we're selfish, nobody's going to be happy. But when we practice self-denial, everyone can be satisfied because we're living to serve one another. This leads to joy as opposed to frustration and anger and jealousy. And so God's way actually makes sense and it leads to our lasting and sustained joy as a body of Christ. But there is a warning here. If we pursue those sinful desires, if we grumble, if we flatter, what's the result? Paul says that if we bite and devour one another, we will consume one another. In other words, divisiveness and selfishness results in mutually assured destruction. Now, if you've heard that term before, mutually assured destruction, mad, that was the principle that essentially kept the United States and the Soviet Union from launching nuclear missiles at each other during the Cold War. Because each government knew that from the very moment that first missile was launched, both of their fates were sealed. The other nation would retaliate and launch more missiles before the first one ever struck. And everyone ultimately on earth would be destroyed. Mutually assured destruction. Yet, when we come into the church, we don't care to launch missiles at our church family. Grumbling, complaining, down-talking one another, pursuing those fleshly desires. How foolish is it, church, to nuke your own eye or your own hand? We are part of the same body, joined together in Christ and by Christ. And so we cannot be divisive without mortally wounding ourselves. When we bite our brother, we are biting our own hand. We are consuming our own flesh. When we grumble and complain about one another, we are cannibalizing ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. And it's utterly foolish. But it's the end result of disunity. When we aim to get back at someone who's wronged us, we're only just punching ourselves in the face. It's silly. And what ends up being the most gutting thing about this type of disunity is that there is always collateral damage. There's always consequences beyond what we expect. 
Because you see, when your body is wounded, it's never just that one part of your body that's affected. Right? If you've been walking through your house at night and stubbed your toe on the end table, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Or if you've got little kids and you step on a Lego, right? it's not just the very bottom of your foot that's affected. You, your whole body flails about because you are in pain. One little part of your body, and yet the whole body is affected. The whole body suffers from the wound. And so we need to understand that when we cause divisiveness in all the different ways that we've discussed, you don't just hurt the person that you're talking about or grumbling about. It wounds everyone. I'm sure you don't intend to harm your granddaughter. But what do you think that you're complaining about the church staff, about the deacons, is going to do to your granddaughter. Whenever you complain about how so-and-so never salts their deviled eggs or never puts enough seasoning in this or that or always does the wrong thing or whatever it might be, what you're doing is sowing mistrust and cynicism in that young heart that's hearing you grumble and complain. There's so many stories that you can find where children have turned against their church because they've seen how the church has mistreated their mother or father. How someone talked about them behind their backs. It's very popular nowadays to to see young people post videos about how they've deconstructed their faith on social media. And yet many of these people haven't deconstructed their faith because they've logically come to the conclusion that their faith doesn't make sense. At the heart of every one of them is the fact that at some point along the way, they've been bitten and devoured. They've consumed one another. The church has hurt them by divisiveness. And so now they've walked away. And so we need to realize that our words are consequential. And they often fall heaviest on the youngest and most tender hearts. The number one factor, the number one factor about how seriously a child will take the church is ultimately how seriously their parents take the church. It's not whether or not there's cool games or good food. It's not even whether or not their friends go there. Your children and your grandchildren will love the church and its people if they see that you do. If they see that you love the church and its people and if they see that you don't talk bad about them and that you make it a priority in your life, your children will follow suit. But if all they hear from you is cynicism and grumbling and down-talking regarding the church, if they see people around them acting on their own selfish desires instead of the good of one another, then they'll abandon it the first chance they get because they don't see any value in it for them. Conflict causes us to consume ourselves. It is cannibalism, self-cannibalism, according to Paul here in Galatians. The second consequence of disunity within the church, though, is a grieving of the Holy Spirit. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now again, right off the bat, we see that ultimately this is rooted in our own redemption. If God has forgiven you, if God 
has swept away your sins by the blood of Jesus, then we should be willing to extend that same grace to everyone else around us. There is nothing that anyone in this room can do to you that is worse than our sins that we committed against God. And if He's willing to forgive us, that means that there is nothing in this room that anyone can do to you that you should be unwilling to forgive or unwilling to get over. But what we find here is that just like a parent can be grieved when their children quarrel, so too the Holy Spirit of God is grieved when His children quarrel. The warning that Paul gives us here, notice what it is that grieves the Holy Spirit. Once more, it's the the sins of the tongue that's front and center. We've seen how so often the tongue is such a great source of disunity. But he says, unwholesome speech grieves the Holy Spirit. Speech that is corrupting. Speech that is not good for building up and edify. He goes on to list bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice. In other words, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Conflict. Conflict among God's people grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, lest we think that this grieving of the Holy Spirit is a small matter, we must consider the role that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of the church. You see, the Spirit empowers every single function in the church, from our outreach, to our fellowship, to our worship, to the very preaching of the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon, every morning before he got up to preach, every Sunday morning before he walked into the pulpit, the one prayer that he prayed over and over again is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he knew that as powerful an orator as he was, was, his words would have no effect on the hearts of God's people were it not for the Holy Spirit moving among them. When the Spirit is grieved, though, Those blessings are withheld, which affect all the ministries of the church. It is true that the Holy Spirit will never abandon a believer. He cannot do so. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of salvation, but He can and does withhold the effects and blessings of His ministry. John Stott says that the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood, and He shrinks away from them. He cannot stand to be around them. And so when disunity is in our midst, the Holy Spirit will not be. And so then if we sense that something is amiss, if the fellowship of our church is not warm and kind and loving, if when we sing together it is stale and lifeless, if we are not seeing hearts broken over sin and souls won to the Lord, if we receive nothing new from the preaching week in and week out, then maybe we need to take a long look in the mirror And ask if we are the source of any discord that grieves the Holy Spirit. And that has caused Him to shrink back away from us or from the ministry of the church. Or if we know of someone else. And here's where we can be good brothers and sisters in Christ. If we know that there's someone that's holding a grudge they just won't let go of. They've told you multiple times, I just just don't like that person. Or I can't believe they made this decision and I just can't respect them anymore then we need to go to that person and tell them, listen, dear brother, dear sister, we need to fix this because the mission of the church is too vital for you to continue carrying that grudge. You can't continue to handicap the work that God has for this church by holding on to your grudge. 
Unfortunately, today, what the churches will often do is we'll resort to worldly methods. We don't want to do that, right? We don't actually want to address the real problem. That would be too hard, too messy to bring up old wounds. And so, what do we do? If the singing is stale, we add fog machines and turn up the volume so that it becomes a concert rather than corporate worship. If we aren't seeing souls saved, we send out surveys into the community and become seeker sensitive to try to lure people into the doors by giving them what they want. If we're getting nothing from the word, we demand clever stories, shorter sermons, series on 12 steps to a better marriage or four ways to manage your money God's way. Or we just say, well, that preacher isn't cutting it. We need a new one. And so we rotate every five or six years and pastors will do the same thing. Right, pastors will say, well, I've, I've done my time here three, four years in and, and nothing's happening, so it's time for me to move on. And we never actually consider that maybe the Holy Spirit is just grieved with us because we aren't unified. Because these things are going on. Because we are slandering one another. Because there is speech that is not wholesome. We're backbiting. We're bitter. We never address the real problem, and so we just go through all these different worldly means. And LifeWay will come up with a new series that we can implement, a new program, a new strategy, and we'll try that out for a little while, and maybe we'll get excited about it, and then we'll go back to the same old routine. Never dealing with the root problem of the Holy Spirit being grieved by our disunity. We must understand, though, that the pastor cannot preach unless he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit, at least not effectively. And the Holy Spirit will not reveal Himself in power where there is disunity. And so the effective ministry of the Word, effective worship, it depends just as much as the people in the pews as it does the people behind the pulpit. Right? It's it's how we relate to one another. If there is warmth and love and self-sacrifice in the church, then there's going to be good preaching and good worship from behind the pulpit. That's what the Word tells us. We all have a role to play in making sure that this church is thriving and vibrant and accomplishing the ministry that God has given us. And so we need to ask, what am I doing to ensure that the unity of the church is preserved so that the functions of the church, the ministries of the church, can carry on in power, empowered by the Holy Spirit? So we see here these warnings that Our disunity causes us to cannibalize ourselves, to consume one another. The the disunity in the church can can grieve the Holy Spirit and, and cause the ministries of the church to grind to a halt. But the final consequences of disunity that we will discuss today is perhaps the most egregious. And that is that disunity or conflict robs God of His glory. Turn back with me once more to Romans chapter 15 verses 5 through 7. There, Paul exhorts the church as he closes this letter to the Romans. In a positive manner, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Listen, Paul's putting this in the positive. When we are unified, when we are united together by the blood of Jesus, this is what it ought to look like. 
that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can welcome one another as the Lord has welcomed us. Just as we have been brought into God's family, so we ought to be eager to bring in brothers and sisters into this family. And we ought to be eager to tell them, listen, you will indeed find a family here where people love one another. And you are welcome to come and be a part of it. But conflict has just the opposite effect. Paul says that as we do this in unity, God is glorified. Unity enables us to glorify God. Therefore, disunity, conflict, prevents us from glorifying God. Disunity robs God of the glory that He is rightfully due. And so this is a serious sin. You are robbing God when you are in conflict with one another. When you aren't seeking reconciliation. When you are holding on to grudges. And so as we've already indicated, it's impossible for us to worship God when we're not united with one another. When we carry grudges against one another. This is why Jesus Himself, you'll remember in His ministry, He tells us that if we bring an offering... Next week we'll be participating in communion. There's always an opportunity that we give for you to examine yourself and see if there's something you have against someone. Because of this, Jesus says, if you bring an offering and you realize that you have something against your brother, He says, leave your offering and then first go and be reconciled. Reconciliation must take place before true worship. Jesus says, you can't worship me rightly if you're not reconciled to your brother. So go and be reconciled first. Leave your gift, then come and bring your gift, then come and worship. Disunity prevents us from glorifying God in our worship. Sure, we may sing some words, we may set through a sermon, but make no mistake. If you have something against your brother, if you are not in one mind together, then you are not worshiping. You're merely going through the motions and you're robbing God of what He's rightfully due. Some of us may be nursing grudges that we've harbored for years. That means we've been coming to church week in and week out, putting on our Sunday best, and have never actually worshipped God in years. Not only that, we're grieving the Holy Spirit, causing His blessings and His effects to be withheld from the church. That's why Jesus and His apostles and Paul and James and Jude all place such a heavy emphasis on reconciliation and unity. Because we cannot function as a church if we are not unified. We're handicapping ourselves when we refuse to let go of petty grievances and to be reconciled. Thriving churches that glorify God are unified churches. And praise God, I believe that's what we have here. I really do. I believe that for the most part, there is a sweet spirit of love that pervades this congregation. But I don't want to be naive enough to think that just because I'm not aware of it, there's not some of this out there. And that we're not what we could be. We're not all that we could be if this exists. We hate consequences. But sometimes we would rather live with the consequences of our disunity than confront To actually confront and do the hard work of reconciliation. To deal with what divides us. But you see, if we don't deal with it, if we just allow it to set and fester, that road will eventually lead to us 
ceasing to function as a church. And we become a social club with a veneer of morality full of divided, disunited people. If we have been redeemed by Christ, and the Bible tells us that we have been reconciled to God. And if that's the case, if I've been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, and you've been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, then there ought to be nothing standing between you and me. Because we both have our identities in Christ. And so to refuse reconciliation, to say I refuse to be united to this person, I refuse to deal with this obstacle that's come between us, is to ultimately deny the very gospel by which we have been saved. It's to say that the gospel is not enough. To say that the gospel is enough to reconcile me to God, but it's not enough to reconcile me to you, is blasphemy. It's to cheapen and diminish the work of Christ on our behalf. If we're okay with that, then perhaps we should evaluate whether or not we have actually embraced the gospel. The gospel that reconciles us to God. If we think that the gospel can reconcile us to God, but not one another, then we have believed in a weak and cheap gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus. If that's the case, perhaps God has laid on your heart, perhaps He's revealed to you today that you never actually have believed in the gospel. Then today, in just a few minutes, I would invite you to come and let me know that you'd like to have a conversation about how you can submit your life fully to Jesus Christ. How you can believe in the true gospel and first be reconciled to God and then be enabled to be reconciled to one another. But perhaps also you've realized that these very things, these very consequences, you see them in your life. And you realize God has revealed to you, you know exactly where it's coming from. You know that grudge that you're holding on to. You know those divisive, down-talking words that you've uttered against your brother and sister in Christ, and you need to come and repent of that, then today is for you as well. Come and repent, and then I would encourage you to take the next step. Go to that brother or sister and tell them, listen, I'm sorry. We've not been united for a long time, and it's my fault, and I'm ready to be united with you. Listen, that starts happening in this church, and I guarantee you the Holy Spirit, when He ceases to be grieved, He's going to move in our midst and in our people and in our community and He's going to use this church to glorify God when we stop consuming one another. Church, I believe that can happen. I believe that the foundation is here. I believe that there is a sweet unity in this church. But again, I'm not naive enough to think that someone out there is not harboring some sort of grudge like this. And so I would urge you for the sake of your own life, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our neighbors that need us to take the gospel to them. Be reconciled to God and be reconciled to one another. If you need help with that, let me know. If it's been a long time and you don't know how to start the conversation with that person, let me know. I will go together with you to them so that you can be reconciled. So that that conflict can be stamped out. And so that together we can link arms for the sake of God and His kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the challenge that it gives us to evaluate our own lives to ensure, Lord, that we are not in open, hostile conflict with our brother or sister in Christ. I thank You for the hope that it gives us for reconciliation. Lord, I thank You for the blood of Jesus that's been shed so that we could be reconciled to You and also to one another. 
Lord, I pray that as we conclude today, that if you have convicted hearts, that they would respond in faith to ask forgiveness for their sins. And Lord, that as people do and as people are reconciled to one another, Lord, that you would bless this church, that you'd provide hope through your Holy Spirit, ministering and moving and working in hearts. Lord, I pray that you would enable us through your Holy Spirit to be about the mission that you've called us to, to reach this community, to reach this city and ultimately the nations, Lord, with the good news of Jesus. But Lord, let us start today in being reconciled to one another so that the fame of your name may spread from here to every corner of this community and to the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.